Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. This episode was sponsored by Girls Can Crate, a subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Real women make the best heroes, and every month they deliver them to your front door. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Katie. Story time. Yay! Once upon a time, centuries ago, a young girl with a loving but absent father and a wicked mother and sisters, was forced to work all day long as a servant to her family. Cleaning, tending the fires, mending, knitting, bringing the tea, doing anything they asked. Her name starts with a C. I didn't think we were allowed to do fictional characters. <laughs> well, years went by and Lonely and exhausted as she was, she did her duty with loyalty and devotion. One day, a young man swept her away from her life of servitude, and she lived happily ever after as a world-renowned astronomer. <laughs> Yay! That, that was a plot twist! <laughs> that was not what I expected. I have for you today a real-life Cinderella story, except instead of marrying a handsome prince, she became a world-renowned astronomer. <laughs> That's much better. <laughs> Her name is Caroline Herschel. I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's-Her-Name. Fascinating women you've never heard of. Caroline Herschel was born in Hanover, Germany, 270 years ago. Mm. And that's where she lived her life of servitude. But her deliverance came in the city of Bath, England, where she went to live with her brother. So, for our guest scholar today, we're going back to Bath. Yay, my favorite place. <laughs> but this is Bath about 100 years after Sally Lunn. Mm. She probably wouldn't have recognized this bath at all, the bath of the 1700s. So let's see. This is approaching Georgian bath. This is Georgian bath. All yes. right. This is iconic, like the zenith of Georgian bath. Cool. See, I know stuff. <laughs> so while I was in bath, I met with Joseph Middleton. My name is Joseph Middleton, and I'm the museum administrator of the Herschel Museum of Astronomy. He's the manager of Caroline Herschel's historic house in Bath, which is now called the Herschel Museum of Astronomy. And it's a very, very cool place. How are you finding all this stuff in Bath that I've never even heard of? <laughs> well, we historians, we have a nose for these things. Mm. Just, just drop us in a new place and we will sniff out the geeky historic sites. Awesome. We sat down to talk about Caroline Herschel in the back garden of the house, which was a lovely setting, but which also meant that we got pooped on by a couple of birds. <laughs> so we did have to halt the interview a couple the of times. Things, the things we suffer for history. 
Okay, so Caroline Herschel was born into what we what we would call a working class family in Hanover, and she was one of ten children. She was the youngest female, so her lot in life was set. Family servant. That mm-hmm. is her job in life. She's bright, and she knows it, but she's not allowed to get an education because they need a servant. They don't need uh, a girl who's going to get an education and then leave them. So it's kind of an interesting relationship. Her her father believed in education and in bettering oneself, and, and he was kind of this forward-thinking man. He wanted her to get educated, but her mother didn't, mm. and her mother actively fought it. Did she have other sisters that they educated? Yes. Or Wow. To put it succinctly, her life from sort of the age of 0 to 22 in Hanover was kind of difficult, kind of brutal at times. Um, because of the expectation of, of a, a younger daughter. She was one of ten children, four unfortunately passed away. Um, so she was the youngest daughter out of six. And so she didn't get as much education as the boys did. And Isaac was a hand- well, bandman master of the Hanoverian Guard. Um, so he was responsible f- for music and being part of the army. And he was ambitious, in a sense, and very enthusiastic about education. And so he did put an indelible pressure, particularly in the boys, but also Caroline, about self-improvement, about curiosity of the world. So he would talk to them the things about natural philosophy, including Caroline. He would talk to them the things about astronomy, about music as well. Um, so he's trying to give a sense of, of the world out there and what possibly could be achieved in, um, in a lower class background. Alternative, Anna, uh, the mother, she thought the woman's role, the lady's role in the house was subservient to the males. And so she didn't really see it necessary for someone to improve themselves when that was extra stuff on the side, frivolous stuff, which didn't help with doing the housework or doing the linen or doing, you know, scrubbing out the, the hobs of the coal or whatever. It made no sense to her. And that was, that was her background. So there was those those subtle, well, not so subtle, actually, those big differences uh, between uh, the mother and father. So Caroline pretty much, unfortunately, was visible to the family and was a servant pretty much to the family, um, particularly by her mother and her older brother, Jacob. And in Karen's, Caroline's memoirs, she, she really was bitter and angry about this. These were horrible years for her when she was very conscious of her intelligence and what she hoped she could do. We know this because in old age, she, she lived to be 97. Awesome. And in old age, she wrote her memoirs. So we have her story in her own voice which cool. is great. And we even have it in audiobook form, thanks to LibriVox. Wow. You know LibriVox? I do, yeah. Yeah, kind of like crowdsourced audiobooks that are f- right. freely available to everybody online. Where you might get um, a fabulous British actor being Dracula or a Texas football coach being Dracula. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the, the memoirs of Caroline Herschel on LibriVox, they are read by Kevin Green. And at first I thought, hold on. We have a man reading Caroline Herschel's voice and her Mm. memoirs, but there are lots of voices in the book because she includes letters, copies of letters Mm. from everybody she wrote to. So it's actually kind of this collection of just the social circle of Caroline Herschel, Mm. and and he does all the voices wonderfully. Awesome. And I love it. So here is Caroline Herschel's account of her childhood. It was a really lonely one. My sister was not of a very patient temper, and could not be reconciled to have children about her, and I was mostly, when not in school, sent with Alexander to play on the walls, or with the neighbours' children, in which I seldom could join, 
and often stood freezing on shore to see my brother skating on the town ditch till he chose to go home. In short, there was no one who cared anything about me. Oh. <laughs> so, so virtually every waking moment was spent cleaning, tending the fires, knitting, sewing, making and mending all her family's clothes. You know, she talks about, mm. I started on some lace for my brother's cuffs and things wow. like that. She was the family's Cinderella. And her role was further cemented over time because her only way out was marriage. Right. And that for her became seemingly impossible. She also was very ill um, at four. She got smallpox, which was a killer in that time. Um, fortunately, uh, heavily disfigured her, mainly in, on the face. And one of her left eye was, was damaged, partially damaged as well. And at 10, she got typhus, which is also another mass killer um, and she was very ill and that stunted her growth she was well below five foot so her lack of education her illnesses her sense of the future was very much limited um, by her circumstance in the social hierarchy yeah. and her father did say um, presumably out of kindness saying that she wouldn't find a, a male suitor because uh, she wasn't handsome um, so possibly later on in her life she might when she's older she might find an older man who might take her in for her for her merits um, so, for once again, going back to the lady of that period, with very few options, usually marriage would be one way to have some sort of status, at least. Um, so to being restricted being married or getting a job outside of the home, um, this shows how limited she was um, back in Hanover. In fact, she doesn't even have any friends at all. She tells this sad story of a little girl, another little girl that she met when she was young and their kind of secret friendship. It kind of reminds me of the little princess. They woke mm. up before anybody else woke up in the morning and they would secretly meet and just be together and Aww. like these cute little kids. And then that girl dies. <laughs> but sometimes I found it scarcely possible to get through with the work required and felt very unhappy that no time at all was left for improving myself in music or fancy work, in which I had an opportunity of receiving some instruction from an ingenious young woman whose parents lived in the same house with us. But the time wanted for spending a few hours together could only be obtained by our meeting at daybreak, because by the time of the family's rising at seven I was obliged to be at my daily business. But during the summer months of 1766, very few mornings passed without our spending a few hours together, to which I was called by my friend's loud cough at her window by way of notice that she was ready for me. She could not sleep, and was glad of my company. I lost her soon after, for she died of consumption. She grows up, and nothing ever changes. Then, at age 22, a letter arrives from her older brother, William, who is a working musician in Bath, in England. Mm. And William was very successful at Bath at that time, so he had been in Bath for approximately about four or five years, and he was the uh, organist of the Octagon Chapel, and the choir master there as well, and he was working in the Pump Room Orchestra, as well as being a teacher of music, so he had really cemented his position as a working musician. And he understood that after their father died, Isaac, that Caroline was pretty much being used as a, a servant to her, her family. And so it became apparent he's still a bachelor, so it wasn't um, totally uh, 
selfless. <laughs> but he brought her over to run his household, but at the same time on the promise that he would make her a musician. Only when William offers to pay his mother <laughs> to make up for Caroline's absence does her mother finally agree to send Caroline to live with William in Bath. Wow. Good for William. Yeah, I mean, he basically purchased her a chance in life. Yeah. Not everybody approved. Her brother Jacob actually laughed at her when he heard that she was going to be a singer in Bath. He just couldn't see it. Um, but William and another brother, Alexander, obviously saw the potential in her. So this is it. Her one break. She takes the leap. But I will not attempt to describe my feelings when the parting moment arrived and I left my dear mother and most dear Dietrich on Sunday, August 16th, 1772 at the post house. And after travelling for six days and nights in an open, in those days very inconvenient, post wagon, we were on the following Saturday conveyed in a small open vessel from the quay at Helvotsluis on a stormy sea to the packet boat which lay two miles distant at anchor, from which we were again obliged to go in an open boat to be set ashore, or rather thrown like balls by two English sailors on the coast of Yarmouth for the vessel was almost a wreck, without a main and another of its masts. After having crawled to one of a row of neat low houses, we found several clean-dressed women employed in cutting bread and butter from fine wheaten loaves, as fast as ever they could. One of them went upstairs with me to help me put on my clothes, and after taking some tea we mounted some sort of a cart to bring us to the next place, but we had hardly gone a quarter of an English mile when the horse ran away with us, overturning the cart with drunken passengers, my brother, another person and myself all throwing themselves out, I flying into a dry ditch. We all came off, however, with only the fright, owing to the assistance of a gentleman, who with his servants was accompanying us on horseback. I for my part was, from the privation of sleep for eleven or twelve days, not having above twice been in what they called a bed, almost annihilated. We went to the inn, from whence we at ten o'clock in the evening started by the night coach for Bath. When she arrives in Bath, wow, this isn't just any city, this is Bath, at the at the peak of the Georgian era. Right. It's, it's the cultural center. It's like the New York City of its day. Or maybe the Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> it's the place where all the rich and fabulous people go to see and be seen. This is Jane Austen's bath, right? Yes, yeah. exactly, yes. And everybody who is anybody is there, and her brother is one of the foremost musicians and composers in Bath at the time. Wow. In fact, the music in this episode is all composed by William Herschel himself and performed by the Herschel Ensemble. Wow. So the deal that he had made with his mother was, I'll take Caroline for two years. If she hasn't made something of herself in two years, I'll send her back home. <laughs> no pressure. So she's, she's thrown into the deep end with the best of the best, and she's got two years to make something of herself, or she's got to go back home. And at midnight, the coach turns back into a pumpkin, and she's back <laughs> in the ashes. Yes, exactly. Wow, she is she is so Cinderella. It's amazing. Yeah, wow. Okay, the bath we know and visit today is Georgian bath. 
Right. So it's called the Georgian era because for the whole of the 1700s, you've got kings named George. George I, George II, George III, and then George IV. So all the Georges come in a row. The bath that they built in the 1700s, it was happening right when she was living there. They decided that old medieval bath, Sally Lund's bath, was insufficient. And they covered it up. (laughs) I I can hardly fathom such a construction project on this kind of scale today. They just decided, let's raise the street level of the whole city, the entire city. (laughs) They raised it up a story and they constructed new streets, paved streets. They built everything out of limestone and they buried the medieval street level, Mm. turning it into the sewers. So they're like, we could use this. Let's, we need, we need plumbing. The medieval stuff is ugly. So let's turn the medieval stuff into plumbing. And then they built the street level one story higher than it had been. So that's why at the Sally Lunn house, the medieval house is down underground. Uh That's a really (laughs) smart way to, I mean, that's so much. It sounds crazy, but that's easier than trying to dig sewers underneath. Yeah, good point. And then it's been frozen in time ever since. So the closest you can get to traveling back into the 1700s is to go to the city of Bath because the whole thing was built out of the same limestone in that time period. It's pretty amazing. One of the reasons that I love that they decided let's just start from scratch and build our own buildings was because the medieval buildings, the ceilings were too low. Because mm. everyone was wearing huge, tall wigs. Yeah. And big top hats. The fashion was to wear a wig that stuck up like a foot off the top of your head. <laughs> and the ceilings were too low, kept knocking off their wigs and stuff. So they said, just get rid of it. We're going to raise the ceilings. We're going to wow. have a whole new building. So there she is in Georgian Bath. She's at the center of high society. And she's starting from scratch. She's taking singing lessons <laughs> and trying to succeed before before her coach turns into a pumpkin. She better make it. <laughs> if this story does not have a happy ending, <laughs> I'm going to be mad. She became a very good singer, and to be a singer on the stage as, as first soprano in Bath, you had to be good, because you had all different types of strata of society coming to Bath to the concerts. And we've actually got a poster, which I can point out to you, of one of Herschel's benefit concerts in uh, 1778, where Caroline is the, the first soprano. So you have to be pretty good to be singing the Messiah first soprano and taking solos right. uh, in the, what was the you know, Bath society. She made it! (laughs) In fact, she didn't just succeed, she excelled. She sang first soprano in Handel's Messiah in Now let's pause for a word from our sponsor. Girls Can Crate is an awesome subscription box that introduces girls age 5 to 10 to real, fearless women who made the world better. Every crate features an inspiring woman, a 28-page activity book, 
plus everything you would need to complete two or three hands-on STEAM activities and more. And if you're on a budget, they have mini crates too. Real women make the best heroes, and every month, Girls Can Crate delivers them. For What's Her Name podcast listeners, we have a special discount code for you. You'll get 20% off your first month's crate, any subscription that you order. Girls Can Crate, C-R-A-T-E dot com. And use the code HERNAME to get 20% off. Things are looking pretty great for Caroline Herschel. I don't like that tone. She's arrived. But. No but. What? No. Meanwhile, William is increasingly distracted. He's burned out, maybe, on music. And we kind of know about that, being the daughters yeah, of I... two working musicians. Yeah, I can't <laughs> imagine why musicians yeah. might get burned out. <laughs> Music really was becoming, well, I think William pretty much gave up on it. He was mm. still doing it to get an income. But there's one quite funny story where William was so outside of the musical world in a way where he's more concentrating on astronomy. He had apparently one of the worst concerts of Messiah played in Bristol where he had to apologise in the newspapers because he was so distracted of um, the organisation of this concert that he put on a concert which people were really lambasted, so he had to apologise. He's become obsessed with the stars. Mm. And he wants to see farther. He wants to... Oh, the literal he's stars. A, yeah. Like the, oh, not, not like the, yes. opera, the, the divas. I was <laughs> yes. like, oh, he's, he's chasing the divas. Oh, right. no. No. The stars. The literal stars in the sky. Okay. That's better. <laughs> so partially to Caroline's despair, when she first came to Earth, about a year in, she suddenly realized that William has found this obsession of astronomy in his spare time. So he did a lot of reading um, and he was even desiring to make his own telescopes. So she found that when she was meant to be trained up by William for British society, for music, she found out that slowly encroaching on all these lessons was astronomy. And of course, William always turned to her for assistance. So she suddenly found herself helping organize, set up for making telescopes, organize observing sessions um, amongst all this music and running a bachelor household as well. Um, so they're almost, you know, in tandem, like sort of roped together like mountaineers in a way, um, on this sort of <laughs> a climb of astronomy together. So they're both learning it together in a way. To be a pioneering astronomer at the time, you were only as good as your tools. So it's really, being an astronomer is really about skillfully, precisely, intelligently building telescopes. And that means chemicals, welding, grinding, carpentry, manufacturing the biggest known lenses and mirrors. Mm. So it's it's really kind of like mad scientist in the basement kind right. of thing. And it always surprised me as well because of music. You know, they could have damaged their vocal cords, they might have damaged their hands at any point because William was primarily, um, you know, played the organ, uh, the violin, etc. Mm. So, you know, at any point their way of income could have been, wow. been you know, stopped. They had a couple really close calls. It's pretty crazy. They blew up their basement. And when you go to the museum, you can still see the damage to the floor. Like all wow. the flagstones are all wonky and caved in from their explosion. It's, oh it's kind of amazing. Yeah, so that's the, the damage on the floor caused by the Herschels and their work. Right? Everywhere? Just yeah, all of it. All of it. All of it. Oh, wow. This is their fault. <laughs> I love that it's still here. Yeah. Damaged intact. And the workshop is right next to the kitchen. And there's not much space in between the two of them. Huh. 
And if you can imagine that still at this point, the Herschel was still professional musicians, so they had to, their clothes would have to be good to be on the stage in polite society. And uh, you can imagine where all the cleaning and, and the washing, and then you're right next into a room which was extremely hot, extremely dirty. So it shows you how you know close everything that those two worlds were colliding, wow. the music and the, the amateur astronomy at that point. What chemicals are you using building a telescope? Like, so you're building like the framework for the telescope and everything, but the real challenge is constructing a ginormous mirror lens. Oh, that's the chemicals, the, yeah. the mercury on the mirror. Okay. Right. To make these giant mirrors bigger than anybody's ever made before. So you have to grind it yourself and then you have to mix the chemicals. Because and... that's still mercury-backed mirrors at that point, right? I mean, that I was yeah, that makes that sense. was what mirrors were. And that's why mirror makers and clock makers would go crazy. And apparently it was also flammable or something to get the mercury to stick to the glass and yeah because she describes like they'd come straight home from a concert they'd still be in their concert dress which includes big lace ruffs sticking out right. of their sleeves and then they would be working with these chemicals and the ruffs of their sleeves would light on fire <laughs> just see that's driven that is people. georgian england that while <laughs> while doing chemical experiments you still must wear your lace ruffs right i mean yeah you couldn't possibly be found unfancified. <laughs> and another time, Caroline took a nasty fall. That my fears of danger and accidents were not wholly imaginary, I had an unlucky proof on the night of 31st December. The evening had been cloudy, but about ten o'clock a few stars became visible, and in the greatest hurry all was got ready for observing. My brother at the front of the telescope directed me to make some alteration in the lateral motion, which was done by machinery, on which the point of support of the tube and mirror rested. At each end of the machine, or trough, was an iron hook, such as butchers use for hanging their joints upon, and having to run in the dark on ground, covered a foot deep with melting snow, I fell on one of these hooks, which entered my right leg above the knee. My brother's call, make haste, I could only answer by a pitiful cry, I am hooked. He and the workmen were instantly with me, but they could not lift me without leaving nearly two ounces of my flesh behind. The workman's wife was called, but was afraid to do anything, and I was obliged to be my own surgeon by applying aquabusade and trying a kerchief about it for some days. At the end of six weeks I began to have some fears about my poor limb, and asked for Dr. Lynn's opinion. He said if a soldier had met with such a hurt, he would have been entitled to six weeks nursing in a hospital. It's the classic mad scientist eccentric life combined with the musical performer life. They've got like a double whammy both at once. Yeah. They are these famous musicians performing in all the famous places and then they're rushing home to do their mad scientist stuff. They slept only when it was cloudy. Jeez. So they're like never sleeping. <laughs> they're observing, they're recording, they're keeping copious charts. They're like gathering really detailed data. They're manufacturing optical instruments of all kinds. They're forging, they're, they're building things out of wood, they're grinding mirrors. And at the same time, the work people that they hire to help them keep stealing their stuff, according to Caroline Herschel, <laughs> t 
tables, <laughs> like their work table just one day is gone, and various instruments, they just disappear. Wow. And, and they're so driven, they're so obsessed that at some point she's even literally feeding him. She's like spooning food into his mouth because he hasn't taken his hands off the telescope for 16 hours. Wow. <laughs> they are driven. When they were collaborating together, William normally was the observer, Caroline was the recorder, and then she would reduce the data for it to be understood in a way, and then that they could use for their latest um, observations. Eventually, I mean, they just literally built a ginormous telescope in their own back garden, <laughs> the largest telescope in the world. They built it themselves in their spare time. What? There in the back garden where I was sitting speaking to Joe Middleton, they made wow. a momentous discovery. March 13th, 1781, they discovered a new planet. What? At the time, six planets were known. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. And they found another one way out there and they named it Uranus. George. Uran George. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they discovered what we now call Uranus, but they named it George. <laughs> Why did someone change it? George is so much better. <laughs> They, I think they wanted to get the attention of the king. The king right, was really yeah, into smart. astronomy. The king at the time was the infamous George III. The George III yeah. that Americans are going to decide is the ultimate tyrant and hate his guts. Right. George is really into astronomy. And they thought, wow, this is huge. If we name this planet after King George, we will wow. certainly get his attention. And then maybe he will hire us to be his astronomers. <laughs> Why have I never heard this story? I had never heard it either. I know. It's amazing. Wow. So as it panned out, the astronomical community globally was uncomfortable with the planet being called George. <laughs> <laughs> they all said, no, all the other planets are the names right. of Roman, Roman gods. gods. Yeah. So they changed the name to Uranus, but originally it was the planet George. I'm calling it George. It's George. Yeah, Uranus is always awkward to say anyway. Right, either way. Uranus, Uranus. Uranus. Yeah, exactly. Nobody wants to say that. So that's their <laughs> strategy. Name the planet after the king and then go, uh, uh, did you see what we did there? Very smart. And it worked. Supporters of William pretty much got onto the king's case saying that we've got this extraordinary astronomer who's making some of the best telescopes in the world. Um, can you find a way to give him patronage so he can pursue this as a full-time career? And that's part of why William called the new planet George, mm -hmm. uh, was to get the king's attention as well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so that, once William got a salary and the pension from the king, that's when they could just drop music. King George offered them royal patronage. William became royal astronomer and Caroline Herschel, his assistant. Wow. She's the first woman paid for scientific work in the UK. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. She actually got a royal commission. She was recognized. Yes. Not just her brother sliding her some money. Yeah, exactly. She was officially in the employ of the royal court on her own. That's awesome. Yeah but they had to leave Bath. 
Now that they're royal astronomers, they need to move closer to the royal court. So on the one hand, she's just done something momentous. She'd become employed for her own scientific endeavors. But she's also leaving Bath, which was, she thought, her ticket to a secure future by being a musician. She gives up being a musician and she moves closer to the royal court at Windsor in order Mm. to be just an astronomer now. Now, her brother's a really famous guy at this point. I mean, he discovered a planet, and he's busy with royal patronage. He's also traveling all over Europe, giving papers, receiving honors. He's gone a lot, and Mm. she's back home. And so to keep herself occupied, she's sweeping the night sky methodically, looking for, well, she's looking for anything. (laughs) Yeah. And she's a really fastidious person. She's excellent at keeping records. In fact, she is the person who gathered all of the data for and wrote a star catalog. Wow. Which is, if people aren't familiar, star catalog is a listing of every known star in the sky, its location, yeah. everything that's known about it, the name of it. She, she, the star catalog that had existed before was totally outdated. So she and William created a new star catalog together. Wow. <laughs> every known star, ev- the precise location, everything that could be known. Wow. This was her magnum opus. This is her great work. Wow. You have to have such an attention to detail, such perfectionism yeah. even. And she did it. And they have a, a copy of her original star catalog in the Herschel Museum of Astronomy. Oh, it's cool. It's awesome. Because if you didn't know what it was, you'd walk by and look at it and you're like, hmm, book with numbers in it. But knowing what it is, yeah. oh, it's such a big deal. It's going to be a game changer in astronomy. Wow. Every astronomer after them uses their catalog right. to base all of their work on. It's so cool. Wow. So we're, we're looking at here the in, uh, Caroline Herschel's Index to Flamsteed's Star Catalogue. And this was one of the, the great projects of the Herschels. And so pretty much because it's such a laborious task, to, it would take years, it took two years for Karen to do it, William just left it with Caroline uh, to sort all this out. So that shows you how precise she was with looking at data and to get it published by the Royal Society is a pretty big thing for a female scientist astronomer for, for their work um, to be published by the Royal Society, which didn't allow women to join till the 1930s. So that, that puts it in context. Yes. So she's sweeping the sky every night methodically looking for anything and she has an aha moment. <gasps> It's a comet! No! <laughs> Not wanting to trouble her brother, who is off <laughs> being busy, she sent the humblest letter ever to another astronomer. Miss Herschel to Alex Ober, Esquire, Slough, August 2nd, 1786. Dear Sir, August 1st, in the evening, at 10 o'clock, I saw an object very much resembling, in colour and brightness, the 27 of Mr. Messier's nebulae, except this object being round. I suspected it to be a comet, but a haziness came on before I could convince myself of its having moved. I made several figures of the objects in the field, whereof I take the liberty to send the first, that you might compare it with what I saw to-night.' 
I think it must be about one degree above the parallel of the fifteen comme. I made these observations with my little Newtonian sweeper, and used a power of about thirty. The field is about one and a half degree. I hope, sir, you will excuse the, the trouble I give you with my vague description, which is owing to my being a bad, or, what is better, no observer at all. For these last three years I have not had an opportunity to look as many hours in the telescope. Lastly, I beg of you, sir, if this comet should not have been seen before, to take it under your protection in regard to A.R. and D.C. With my respectful compliments to the ladies, your sisters, I have the honour to be, sir, your most obedient humble servant, Carolina Herschel. And that astronomer's reply is so heartwarming. Alex Obert, Esquire to Miss Herschel, London, 7th August, 1786. Dear Miss Herschel, I wish you joy most sincerely on the discovery. I am more pleased than you can well conceive that you have made it, and I think I see your wonderfully clever and wonderfully amiable brother, upon the news of it, shed a tear of joy. You have immortalised your name, and you deserve such a reward from the being who has ordered all these things to move as we find them, for your assiduity in the business of astronomy, and for your love for so celebrated and so deserving a brother. I received your very kind letter about the comet on the third, but have not been able to observe it till Saturday the fifth, owing to cloudy weather. I found it immediately by your directions. It is very curious, and in every respect as you describe it. I have compared it to a fixed star on Saturday night and Sunday night. Notice has been given to astronomers at home and abroad of the discovery. I shall continue to observe it, and will give you, by and by, a further account of it. In the meanwhile, believe me to be, with much gratitude and regard, dear Miss Herschel, your most obedient and obliged humble servant, Alex Obert. That's awesome. Yes! She did it! And all by herself. Her brother wasn't there. This yeah. is exclusively her discovery. But it's not going to get sold that way, or is it? It is! Oh, it is. Caroline Herschel's going to go on to discover seven more comets. <laughs> and she gained international renown. Wow. She was world famous, and they called her the Comet Huntress. Awesome. She later became known as the Comet Huntress. She discovered eight, possibly nine comets in her lifetime. Five were hers, three were ever jointly. I mean, her golden years were from about 1786 to about 1797, where she discovered the eight comets. 17 nebulae and this was a time when comets were of great interest to the public and astronomers in general because uh, it helped prove Newton's theories of gravitation universal laws people and also of course they're pretty reasonably spectacular things to see in the night sky mm. with all the superstition and traditions we had of them but because we're entering into the enlightenment people like Caroline could discover a comet and then it could be said to other astronomers okay here are the coordinates follow it and then the public could follow a comet as well mm. so this was you know the change of of society of understanding where astronomy came in where things weren't these scary superstitious things they could be predictable and they could help us understand in a more rational way the universe mm. and so if you discovered one comet you would become famous and Caroline discovered eight 
She was hugely famous. Like she hit it right on the nose. It was exactly the oh. right moment because when when comets appeared in the sky, if people were like, oh, it's a sign from God, it's a curse, you right. know, what does it mean? But here's Caroline Herschel saying, I can tell you precisely where these comets are in the sky at any given moment. I can tell you when you will be able to observe them with your own eyes in your own back garden. Wow. Comets become like the symbol of enlightenment and the use of science and reason to understand the world around us. So people loved her especially. She was a living legend at that point, you know, visited by royalty, uh, a famous uh, contemporary scientist, the the public at large. I mean, she would go to concerts to see if anyone recognised her. (laughs) I mean, what an amazing character. Blind in one eye, she's disfigured, stunted growth, and she became a leading soprano in the city of Bath, (laughs) and then a pioneering astronomer. So amazing. That's so cool. She was the first woman to be awarded the gold medal of the Royal Astronomical Society in 1828. That is so awesome. For someone who was pretty much an invisible servant to be in standing in the court uh, with royalty showing her own discovery of a comet, it just shows you for what a sliding doors life it was. Yeah, I mean, you have to be made of hardy stuff if for the first 22 years of your life you're just getting setback after setback, not only for health, education, but family relations. And then when, and this is sort of what proves how amazing she was, was that as soon as she got an opportunity, she didn't miss it. So when she was trained to become a singer, she became a very good singer. Uh, When she had to become an astronomer, she became one of the greats of that period. So this is someone who had any opportunity, she took it. Special thanks to Joseph Middleton and the Herschel Museum of Astronomy in Bath. If you want to learn more about Caroline Herschel, find lots of links and books on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. There you'll find her memoirs, a new biography, and the LibriVox audiobook by Kevin Green. Music for this episode was recorded by the Herschel Society, dedicated to reviving and performing the music of William Herschel. You can buy a CD and support the effort at herschelensemble.co.uk. And Handel's Messiah was performed by the St. Michael's Choir. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of images and additional content. In the coming days, we'll post pictures of the house, the floor they destroyed, Caroline's clothing, and even the 40-foot telescope they invented. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith, and What's Her Name is produced by Katie Nelson and Olivia Mickle. What's Her Name podcast is made possible by listeners like you who went to whatshernamepodcast.com and clicked on donate. Help us make more. And thank you.